UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. Jesus lived, died and rose from the dead. It's the Easter story, isn't it? And along the way, he gathered to himself disciples and followers. Fair to say that they were far from perfect. They struggled to see God's plan and purpose. They struggled with fear and pride. They struggled to step up when it was necessary for them to be there for him. But then they turned a corner. They found a new direction. They went from fearful to bold, from confused to clear, from weak to strong. They saw transformation in the lives that they lived and the power that they were able to bring to other people's lives. The sick were healed. The oppressed were set free. The possessed were delivered. So what changed? What took them to the reputation of Acts 17 and verse 6? And what if we could do the same? Charles Martin's latest book looks at the incredible power of those who dare to follow the risen Jesus and wonders that very question, what if we could do the same? And he's my guest for this week's Life Issues. Charles, welcome to UCB. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. So what was it, and perhaps we better explain what Acts 17 verse 6 says, but what was it about the reputation of the disciples in Acts 17 that struck you? Well, very simply, these guys and their, and their wives and the women who followed Jesus turned the world upside down because they saw a dead man live. But let's back up just, just, just briefly. Let's, let's, let's walk back that Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, walks into the room. They can't believe it. He spends about 40 days with them. And then they climb back up this mount. They've been up several times, the Mount of Olives. And they think they're probably going back there just for some prayer. Or, I, think they, I think it was a regular thing. And, and notice they're retracing the steps that they took the night he was falsely accused and tried and soon crucified. But they... I think as they walk up this mount, I think they're joyous. I think they're starting to get used to the fact that Jesus is going to be here a while, that he's actually alive, that he defeated death. And I think they're starting to think in their minds, there's a power here to take on Rome. I think that's what they're thinking. So they're walking up the Mount of Olives. And, and I also think Jesus was a hugger. I don't think he was indifferent. I don't think he sort of stood over there and said, don't touch me. You may not approach. I think he was arm around them. I think he was laughing with them. I think he was a jungle gym for the kids. I think they were always climbing on him. And as they get to the top of this mount, I think Jesus probably hugged them each in his own way and kissed them. And, and then he sees the father's chariot, which they don't see. And he steps in. And the only thing they see in its wake is, you know, Haley's comet. And they're standing there with their jaws open. And these two angels look at him and they say, why are you standing there? This Jesus is going to return in the same way that he left. And so, the thing that started this book for me was this singular sort of picture of these folks who passionately loved Jesus. And we see that passion played out because all but John will eventually die for him. Yes. And they tried to kill John and they couldn't. So they exiled him to an island. But every single one of them walks down this mountain, I think, with one singular question on their mind, which is what on earth do we do now? 
And they walked back into Jerusalem. They had his authority. They had his commands. They had yet to receive his power. But before he left, Jesus said, these things I have done, these signs and wonders, these things I've done, you will do and greater things you will do because I'm going to go be with the father and he'll send my spirit or the comforter to be with you and empower you to take this message to all parts of the world. So about three days later, the roof starts to shake. The Holy Spirit shows up. And from there, this small movement of just, just broken people like you and me take this message of a dead man who lived, who came to pay for the sins of the whole world, who is God incarnate and actually the son of God. And by the time Paul and Silas walk in, to answer your question, by the time Paul and Silas walk into Thessalonica, which is a thousand miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it's across an ocean, unless you walk way around your elbow to get to your thumb, the local rulers are afraid of the power they've heard in this movement because the blind see, the lame walk, and the dead are raised to life, and the sick are healed. And so they drag Jason and his friends, those who are taking care of Paul, and, and they drag him out of his house, and they say, these are those who have turned the world upside down. Another translation reads, these are those who have upended the inhabited earth. And it's a derogatory term. They're not speaking in kindness, but they're afraid of the power of this message of the way. And it's uh, the, 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 the fruit of it was that it upturned everything they thought about the world. But the, for the disciples, the goal was not turning up the world or upending the inhabitant earth. The goal was obedience to the one that they loved. So the fruit of their obedience, the fruit of their belief, became faith, which led to faithfulness, which, which we see walked out in the book of Acts, which then turned the world upside down. And it shouldn't be underestimated the size of the leap that it was for them to go from what they were and where they were to what they became. I mean, we often think about those in the Bible as though they are some sort of spiritual superhero but the reality is these guys were far from superheroes. They, they, they weren't just ordinary people. They were people who really struggled to get their head around what Jesus wanted to do. The beautiful thing, I, when, I, when I first started digging back into really the specific words you see in Scripture, when Jesus walks back into the room after his resurrection, he's standing in front of them, holes in his hands, side, feet. And the word that is used to describe his very, very best friends is unbelief. So I feel a lot better when I read that about them. But the thing that the Lord first had to work with them on, and Thomas gets a bad rap for this because they call him Doubting Thomas. But in fact, Thomas just voiced the question every one of them was afraid to ask. He said, I won't believe until I see and touch. And then he mm -hmm. does. And then the words that come out of his mouth, most this is the... Next to Mary outside the tomb, this is the first proclamation of my Lord and my God. So, so Thomas, I think, gets a bad rap from Sunday school, but Thomas believed, which shows us the problem that these disciples had, which was unbelief. So before they could become these folks that we read about in, in Acts, these, you know, these folks that are written about in Hebrews 11, the great faith hall of fame, the Lord had to take them out of unbelief and into belief. And, and, the, the beautiful thing that I see is that he does that with us as well. And there's a huge difference between simply believing in Jesus as Savior, believing in versus believing that. Scripture says even the demons believe that he is Lord. They've just chosen the wrong kingdom. So 
Jesus had to take them from belief that to belief in. And here's the way I describe sort of the transition that I think occurred in their hearts. Let's say you and I go to our Grand Canyon, which is kind of a deep chasm, right? And somebody has built a bridge across and below it is five or 6,000 foot drop. And, and people are walking out all giddy and they strap that little, you know, thing around their ankles and they climb up on the railing and they hook their GoPro up. And then they take a Peter Pan bungee jump off the side (laughs) and the thing stretches a thousand feet and, you know, expands their spine by six inches and they pull it back up and they're all laughing. And you and I can sit on the side of that chasm and we can point to that little contraption and we, we can say with all confidence, I believe that will hold me if I jump. Really big difference to walk out on that bridge and strap yes. that thing yeah. around our ankles and take a swan dive off the side, believing that it will save us. And these, these men and women who follow Jesus, who did in fact turn the world upside down, and which is why you and I are having this conversation, believed in the power of this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. So Jesus took them from their unbelief so that they could step over the edge for that bungee jump. What do we need to do to let him do that for us? Oh, that's, therein lies the question, doesn't it? Oh, that may, we may need another hour for that one, but, but or, or a couple, but, and maybe I need to write another book on that, but wow, there's so much. I, the thing that, the thing that the Lord has in, has impressed upon me is, is this really simple question? I, I love, I, I say that I love scripture as much as I know my own heart. I really do love the word. And I, I would rather spend time in it than, than reading other anything else. And which is odd because I'm a novelist and I write fiction and you would think I would read a whole lot of other fiction, but I would just rather read scripture. And I think what I, what my prayer is before the Lord is, Lord, would you please, like I'm reading this and I want to believe it, but I know me and there are parts of me that don't. And there are parts of me that don't listen to your commands and really don't want to obey you. And I don't want that to be said of me. So somehow today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, which I believe is as, as much alive today as he was when you sent him and there's been no change and he is very much moving on planet earth today. Would you please, by the power of your spirit, sear this word into my heart so that I believe it? Not only, not only will you cause me to believe it, but will you make me a believing person? I, like, I can't do that. I need you. So breathe that into me today. And I think that's what he did with them. I really think when he walked back into that room and he breathed on them and said, receive holy breath, he still wants to do that with us today. Yeah. Charles' book is called They Turned the World Upside Down, and it is recognizing the power of those who dared to follow Jesus, what they were able to accomplish in him, and suggesting as well that we might do the same. And you talk about the interplay between temporal and spiritual realities i'm quoting in stepping into this reality of god of knowing jesus of jumping that bungee jump of of stepping over the edge and believing that he will carry us into something more and take us into something deeper and richer and fuller and you talk about this idea of the connection the relationship between the temporal this world the spiritual realities, how they come together. 
And you talk about it not only in terms of the early church, but also in terms of your own experience. So as we're thinking about how they changed and how we might be changed, could we unpack, and by we, I mean you, unpack <laughs> a little bit of, of what you mean by that and, and explain it from your own life experience? Let's look at Matthew 10, 10. Jesus says, preach the word, cleanse the lepers, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. Okay, that's a command of Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. So let's just, let's just agree for a second that that's a command of Jesus. And it's still as much true today as it was when he spoke it. He said, when, when he gives his authority and his commands to those who love him, they walk out and they do that and they return to him and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. If you look at the ministry, the healing ministry of Jesus, and you sort of break up all the places where he healed someone, and over 60% of those, the first thing he did was cast out the demonic, which was causing or had been allowed to cause the sickness in the first place. And oftentimes he didn't have to heal them. The absence of the demonic brought on the healing. So as I look at the ministry and the life of Jesus, this deliverance thing was normal. Now, in our day and age, this has been abused ad nauseum. And wow. I look, I've seen it. I know I've seen the TV shows. I, I get it. Okay. I get all of the abuses that have everything to do with the, the world, the, the, the pond we're about to step into. But the abuses of those who have come along and abused the truth of Scripture doesn't make Scripture not true. So I'm just trying to look at the words of Scripture and the commands of my king. And my king, my king says, it's for freedom that I came to set you free. And we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities and forces, evil forces of this dark world. And he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual and sufficient for tearing down strongholds, speculations, and any high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So sort of with that as my undergirding in the last decade or so, as I've sought to taught his word, and I have a group of guys that I've walked with that are in my Bible study, and we've done life together. There are about 11 of us. In one case in particular, and we've seen more of this, but I'll just, I'll just give you one case. We saw and have seen the demonic manifest and, you know, I would just preach. I would just do what I'm doing right now with you. I would just expand on my understanding of the word and what the Lord has revealed to me. And in cases where I've done that, and I've said, Jesus is Lord and declared that whatever, you know, is unclean or demonic that has been there has not liked that. And in some way has responded, look, I don't have the monopoly on this and I am not I'm not claiming to be an expert. I'm just telling you, I feel like Peter and John. How can we but speak of what we've seen and heard? So having things react to me that I know are not my buddy and speak in language, like one of my friends is from Boston. He speaks like the guys in the movie Goodwill Hunting. I mean, he is as Boston <laughs> as you can get. And that yet one day when I'm preaching and, or when I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm teaching, whatever. This thing speaks to me with a Haitian voice. And I just, I just said in the name of Jesus, you're just going to be muzzled. You may not speak. I don't, I don't know what else to do other than that. That's just what the word tells me to do. I think we have seen that the Lord is true and he's faithful. Mm -hmm. And he, we've seen him deliver 
I've just seen, I can't deny what I've seen. I, I don't pretend to have all of this figured out. I just, I just don't find any place in scripture where the power, where the power that Jesus gave the disciples ended with the disciples. I know there are very well-respected teachers who will tell you that it ended with them. I'm just not one of them. I don't agree. How can I but speak of what I've seen and heard? And it's probably fair to say, and, and I hear what you're saying, but I also hear the hesitancy that's in your voice in saying it because you know full well that because of some of the abuses, because of some of the things that have been done, because of some of the exploitation, because of some of the, the things that people are, where people have taken this sort of ministry and made it more about engrandizement of themselves rather than the honor of God, because of that, people are very nervous and people are very hesitant to step towards it and indeed you kind of acknowledge it in the book because there's a, a one point where th this idea that people deny the power of the holy spirit the relevance of the holy spirit for today you say if you were your enemy and you knew that jesus had promised to not only send his spirit but to fill you with him and then dwelling you so that you could be empowered to witness and actually do the stuff he commanded how hard would you work to prevent that and what exactly would you do to stop it and then you go on to say well actually what you do is you'd convince people that the power and the reality of the holy spirit is not for this modern age that's Absolutely. a pretty hefty line in the sand you're drawing there charles <laughs> well if you were our enemy, let's just let's just look at it pragmatic pragmatically a minute. I mean, Satan has been waging war on the likes of us for a long time. Okay, Satan and all his minions, whatever that looks like, whatever the whatever the demonic world looks like, he is a lot better at warfare than we are because he's been doing it a lot longer. That doesn't mean he's more powerful; it just means he's been doing it longer. So, if he saw that the greatest power ever that he could conceive had been given to those that he hated, which is us, because we're image bearers of God. What would he do to cause us or convince us that either it's not real or it died with those who it was first given to, or it's somehow less powerful than his? Mm. Mm. I, I mean, if I was our enemy, I would do all three. I would absolutely unleash hell against what I knew was more powerful than me. And I would try and hoodwink every one of those who stepped into that and walked in it. And getting back to your comment about the abuses, I, I know it's been abused. And look, when I, when I was writing this, trust me, I, I looked at myself and I said, Charles, do you really want to write this? Like, do you really, do you really want to go on radio, TV, whatever, and have these conversations because you're going to be looped in with all the crazies. And I just kept going back to the word saying, Lord, I, this is what your word says. And I, if I'm crazy, I'll just be crazy for you. I don't know how else to do it. I want to be, be faithful to the word and not let my fear of man somehow convince me that his word has somehow changed. I don't believe that. I believe that it is true and it is living and active. And it means today what it meant when he first said it, and it, it, will, it will accomplish the purposes for which he sent it, and it will not return void. I, look, I've prayed for people to be healed that haven't. I've, 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 I've actually prayed for somebody to be raised from the dead. They weren't. They're still very much dead. But the fact that people weren't healed and didn't raise from the dead doesn't mean his power is not alive. Yes. I don't believe the problem is with him. I don't believe the problem is with his word. I, 
I think if we use our circumstances, like this person was not healed, to convince me, well, I should no longer pray, I'm using my circumstances to determine what is true, rather than looking at his word, which I know to be true. Now, let me say one thing real quick there about, about folks who aren't healed. I've, I've, I love praying for people. I've prayed for a lot of folks. I've seen some healed, some not. And I have, I've had other people come along later or before and say the reason so-and-so, and they'll say this to the person, the reason you weren't healed is because you don't have enough faith. I believe that's a lie from the pit of hell. Nowhere in scripture does Jesus ever walk up to someone and say, you know what? I can look at your faith meter and it's just not quite up to par. Why don't you go home and get some more faith and come back? He never says that. No. He takes whatever you bring. Mm. The point is that they brought it to him. All they did was just come to Jesus. So for all of anybody who's listening, and I don't look, I don't pretend to speak for all of Christendom, but I just feel impressed. If, if, if you're one of those people who's prayed for it and you haven't, and somebody can't, you're not, you're not seeing the result and you're not healed, whatever. Maybe you're sitting somewhere and chemo's dripping into your arm and you got no hair. And okay, I, I get it. Somebody said to you, you don't have enough faith. Will you please just let me apologize to you for, for the, for the, for Jesus? Like, I don't know how to step into that, but please forgive us. Forgive those of us who have said to you, you don't have enough faith because it's not true. And those are not the words of Jesus. Jesus would, if, if he were sitting here and I, I pray that he is, he would just sit alongside you and wrap his arm around you and he'd say, child, daughter, son, I love you. But it has to be said that stepping into that reality for the disciples did not take them to an easy life. The sort of conflicts that you're talking about, the sort of challenges, the sort of opposition that you're, you're hinting at there. I mean, they saw that in spades. They saw that in abundance. And, you know, as you said, every one of them ended up executed except John, and they tried hard enough to kill him, but they couldn't. It's understandable, isn't it, that people think, why would I want to step into this reality? Why do we want to step into this reality? Well, that's a great one, too. I, <laughs> sometimes people ask me stuff, Paul, and I got to admit, I wonder sometimes if the questions I get aren't above my pay grade. But let me let me let me try and <laughs> let me try and step into that one just briefly. I think the reason these people. And this includes today, there are folks dying for the name of Jesus. Okay. But the reason these folks that we read about in, in Acts, Stephen, Paul, all of them, is because they love the Son of God named Jesus. And they knew him. And they, they knew him. And they, they loved him. And the fear does not drive someone to die for someone. Only love does that. And so I think that while they were being persecuted and skinned alive and beheaded and crucified upside down and swords put through them, the thing that drove them on was that they knew this Jesus. That's, so the question for us is, how do we, on this side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, in the age of the Holy Spirit, how do we come to know this Jesus in the same way? And the only way I know, how, and I can't speak, I can't speak for everybody. Only way I know how to do that is to take his word, get on my face before the father 
and say, Holy Spirit, would you please like baptize me afresh and anew today? I humble myself before you. Your stuff's more important than my stuff. I yield my will to yours. I surrender rightly to the Lordship of Jesus. Whatever you want to do, let's go do it. And so let's just walk through that today. And will you please make me a tune? Like when I need to pray, will you prompt me? Because I, I get in my own way sometimes and I don't see stuff. And I just need you to remind me. And I think, the re- I think these, these folks, these men and women loved Jesus. And they, they, these folks knew what he smelled like. Let me, let me, say, one more, let me say one more thing. When, when we were young, Christy and I have three boys. They're now 23, 21, and 18. 18's going on 23, but he's 18. So when they were young, Christy would, you know, let's say a year or less, Christy would try, you know, the breastfeeding thing. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. And, 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 and sometimes, you know, she would get up at three o'clock in the morning or whatever to do the midnight, middle night feeding and Sometimes she would come to me just exasperated with this, you know, it hadn't worked, gone all that well. And this, this, she would hand me this, it's like Mufasa. She would hand (laughs) me this thing, this crying, screaming, peeing, pooping, sweaty bundle of not joy. And she would say, here, you fix him. You go do something with him. And I would get up and go change his diaper and go out and you know, in, the, in the living room on the couch. And I would take off all his clothes, but, but his diaper. And we would get on the couch and I would, I would try and cradle him on my chest. And all, like, all parents have done this. And inevitably, he would quit s- struggling and sort of crawl up into a little fetal ball and tuck his knees into my chest. And sooner or later, my son's all three of them would tuck their nose into the nape of my neck. And I think when they could smell me, Mm. they would go to sleep and Christy would walk out many mornings. I'm on the couch with my shirt off, my son on my chest, the baby is sleeping, drooling all over me. And she would say, look, I have this stuff and I can't do that. How do you do that? Well, if you unpack the word Abba, which is father, and it's the way Jesus referred to his father, and we see it over 165 times in the Gospels. If you unpack the word Abba and you kind of dig down into the meanings, one of the meanings of the word Abba is I long for your scent. These people who died for Jesus knew what he smelled like. Mm. They knew what he sounded like. They'd been in his presence. I, I want that. I don't always know how to get there. And I, I, you know, I have my days and you can ask Chris, you can ask Christy, there are days when I'm just a grump and I, you know, I'm, I'm me, I'm broken. I don't get it right. But I know that my heart's cry is to experience Jesus the way that they did, how they did. And I believe that we can, and it's through the power of his spirit. I think very often we assume that the transformation for the disciples that took them from barely able to function on a spiritual level to be these transformers of the world, turning the world upside down. We often assume that the transformation is down to the Holy Spirit, day of Pentecost, almost as though it was something that was done to them. One of the things that you, and I suppose in a sense, Therefore, we should simply wait until it's done to us. But one of the things you point out, both in in our conversation today, but also in your book, is that there is this different slant that actually you see them 
pursuing it. I mean, you talk about the interplay between reflection, repentance, and action. And and it's it's almost as though, yeah, it was done to them when the Holy Spirit came upon them. But it they weren't just passive recipients, were they? No, that is a great question, Paul. Now, let's back up, because what can a dead man do to make himself alive? Nothing. Paul says in Ephesians, we were all dead in our sins. The word he uses there is actually a corpse, children of wrath. So we're all saved by grace. And I thank God for that grace. And I mean that he, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And so I'm I'm grateful for the grace in which he chose me, breathed into me. He brought this Lazarus back from death and brought me back to life. Now, once made alive and once crucified with Christ and having been resurrected with him and his spirit, which is crazy if you think about the third member of the Trinity, like dwelling in my chest, once once there, I do think we bear... I do think we bear the responsibility to obey what he commanded. I mean, Paul says in Philippians, he, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, young men, in the same way, humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of God. That phrase is, we skip over that, but he says, humble yourself. So humility before the Father is a choice. I don't see any place in Scripture where God humbles his people. Now, he creates circumstances that allow them to either humble themselves or not, i.e. the desert following the exodus from Egypt. But I don't think God, he's not a dictator. He's loving. Mm. And he gives us the opportunity. to. And if you also, if you unpack that word, humble yourself, as I, and I'm not a great Hebrew scholar, but as I understand it, it actually paints a picture of a bondservant putting on the apron, which in that day and age would have identified servant by choice, not by conquering. So it's when Paul is saying, humble yourself, he's saying, this is something that you choose. So an answer as best I can to your question. Yes, these men and women receive the Holy Spirit by the gift of the grace of God. But then what do they do with it? Well, they chose to walk out, remember the things that he had told them, and they went and did them. That to me is the that to me is the wonder and the you know the majesty and the strength and the courage of these men and women who spoke this message of the way that eventually made itself to us and i guess if i admire i admire a lot about them but i admire their like their gumption the thing in their gut that said even though those people hate me and even though they don't want to hear this message, I'm going to speak it because I love the one who gave it. And I believe what he said. And that to me is what amazes me about these men and women. Charles' book is called They Turned the World Upside Down, written by Charles Martin. It's available online. And once they're open again, it'll be available in good Christian bookshops as well. It's very easy to read. It's very easy to comprehend and, and to grasp what Charles is saying, not least because he uses very real-world language, like the moment he says Peter opens his big mouth again and says, I, that tickled me when I read that, I confess. Well, one of the things that you talk about in the book is your own experience being a part of a group of, in your instance, men together 
who have, and you, you've alluded to them already in our conversation, who have journeyed together. And it seems that in the same way that the disciples had that community of accountability and encouragement and challenge and so on and so on, that, that helped them to step forward into this destiny they had in Jesus. Are you suggesting that actually for you, and maybe for all of us, it's high time we drew people around us that would actually encourage us to step forward rather than allowing ourselves to simply hold back? I had an amazing experience in 1997. I went to Africa on safari, and I, I got to watch a herd of buffalo, about 1,500, 2,000 buffalo out on the Sahara. And the strong and the they all kept together up front. There was a, there was a, you know, 13 or 1400 of them up front and they all kept together. Well, as we continued to look at this herd of Buffalo, there was a pride of lions from behind and the lions did not attack the front of the herd. The lions crept around in the back and I watched this happen and they picked on the weak and the old and those that were isolated. And I, when I watched this biblical truth that we see that, we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he might devour. And so, I don't know, somewhere in my life, I just said, you know, my enemy wants to isolate me and he would love to. And anytime you see like battle soldiers, like getting isolated is, is not a good thing mm -hmm. for the soldier. So I don't know. I tried this in college some, and anyway, about 15 years ago, I, I got together a group of my friends and I said, look, let's just, and some of them I didn't know all that well. And if you were to ask them today, were, were they all strong believers? Did they believe? Many of them would tell you, hey, I believe that there is a God, but I don't really believe that there is an enemy or a devil or any, any of that. That's all kind of foolishness with me. And I said, okay, well, let's just get into scripture. And man, if you could see and hear these people pray, these guys pray today, they very much believe we have an enemy and their prayers are very different. And it's been awesome to see what the Lord has done in them. But we just got together and we said, okay, let's just put all the baloney, and Paul would call it scubalon, which is the, the really sweet Greek word for bull manure. Let's just put all that aside. Let's just not hide. Let's just don't pretend. Let's just, look, I have stuff in my closet that I don't want you to know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my closet and the stuff that I thought I was taking to the grave and all my sin, and I'm going to fling open that door and I'm going to turn the light on and all of us are going to walk down in there and I'm going to show you what I don't want you to know about me. Because the Lord says, confess your sins to one another. And so we've, we've done that and we continue to do that. And they know the stuff in my closet. They, they know the stuff I'm not going to tell you and your listeners and, you know, all that stuff. But it was a, an incredibly freeing thing then, and it's an incredibly freeing thing now. And the thing that the enemy wants to do, do is the enemy wants to convince us that our sin disqualifies us. Mm. Our sin somehow mm. makes us different or yeah. less. Or, and then the enemy takes our sin and he dumps on guilt and shame. And with shame, I mean, shame is a powerful weapon. And, he, and, he, and he, we see this immediately after the resurrection because... Jesus comes back and he's got to get his leader's head straight. And his leader is Peter, who anytime there's a chance for somebody to speak, Peter opens his mouth normally to put his foot in it, which we see him do around the crucifixion because he didn't does the, he does the very thing Jesus said he was going to do, which is he denies him. So 
Jesus is resurrected and he's got to go looking for his quarterback because Peter, notice what he's doing. He's no longer following Jesus. He's returned to the north, to the Galilee. He's in a boat and he's fishing. Why? Because he doesn't feel qualified to follow Jesus because he denied him. Jesus knows this, but in perfect mercy-filled, loving, tender fashion, Jesus appears on the beach. All the guys in the boat who are following the big meathead who can't keep his mouth shut will say, look, there's Jesus on the beach. And Peter, notice what Peter does. It's interesting. It tells you a little, a little, a little, bit, a little bit about his heart. He does not say, Lord, tell me to come to you because he doesn't feel worthy now to walk on water. And secondly, he covers up. Now, what person, when he's going swimming, puts his cloak on? Anyway, Peter does. He dives in, swims ashore. And Peter is brokenhearted because he loves Jesus. But he knows he did the very thing Jesus said he was going to do, which he told him he wasn't going to do. And he, but he doesn't know how to get right with Jesus. So Jesus comes to him and says, and I've heard this taught where people have taught me, this is a condemnation or a, a, you know, like a Jesus has got his finger in Peter's chest saying, Peter, do you love me? And do you love me? And do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And I don't believe it happened that way. I think Jesus sat out on the beach next to Peter. Notice he does it next to a charcoal fire which is interesting because the last time Peter denied Jesus, it was next to a slave girl and a charcoal fire. So this is not bode well for Peter. And he knows this the moment he steps foot on the beach. He sits down, Jesus gives him some fish. And I think Jesus sits down next to his buddy and wraps his arm around him and maybe even presses his forehead to his and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says it again. He says, do you love me? And I think the thing that's beautiful about Jesus' question is he gives Peter the chance to make the right confession. And in asking him three times, he's really saying, hey, this is a do-over. And it's the greatest do-over maybe in the history of do-overs. But the Lord appears on that beach to give Peter this do-over, which when he's finished, he looks at me and says, hey, buddy, follow me, which is the very thing Peter wants to hear. Mm -hmm because he's now been put back in the lineup and he's, he's called worthy to follow his, his friend. And the, the beauty of this is we see just a couple chapters later, Peter becomes who we all want and hope he becomes in Acts 2 on the southern steps of the temple. When he gives possibly the second greatest sermon in the history of sermons, second only to the one given on the mount. But the beauty in that moment for me is that on the beach is Jesus deals with Peter's shame which is also what he dealt with these guys in my group. And it's the maybe one of the enemy's primary weapons against us because all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's me, that's you, that's all of us. And yet the enemy wants to convince us that somehow our sin, our abortion, our, our, our divorce, our adultery, our name your sin, that that thing identifies us. And yet Jesus comes along and says, no, it, it's not your identity. It, nobody gets to tell you who you are but me. And my words to you are that I love you, that I've made the payment for your sin. I am the propitiation that satisfies the wrath of God. And here's who you are. You're my daughter and you're my son and I love you. And not only that, but this is my great desire. If you will follow me, let me take you by the hand. And let me lead you back to my father, because that's the reason for the cross in the first place. The cross is not just simply to save us from hell. It absolutely does that. But the reason for the shed blood of Jesus 
is to satisfy the wrath of God so that Jesus, the Son of God, can return us to the Father. That's why I said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So long, long-winded story to answer your question, but yes, I do... I don't want to try and do life without these guys. I'd be a mess without them. I've told them that a bunch of times. If you open the book, you'll see the blurbs or the comments in the front of the book. My publisher is always getting, I'm now I'm, I'm getting close to 20 books. And every time I publish a book, my publisher comes to me and says, Hey, we got to go find somebody famous to put something in the front of your book or so we can put it on the cover because people like to read books that have been acknowledged by famous people. And then this one, and then what if it's true? I said, Hey, let me go get the people that are famous in my life. And that's these guys who I've done life with. So when you open the book, these are men that I've done life with that have poured into me and then I've poured into, and they know my secrets. And I'm grateful that my publisher allowed me to, to put them in there. They turned the world upside down. It's part narrative, part study. There's a prayer at the end of each chapter for us to pause and reflect on what we've heard. And it's the story of how a group of men and women but we tend to think about the men, don't we? But a group of men and women discovered the reality of the love of Jesus. And knowing that reality, stepped into being able to follow him. And in following him, stepped into the power and representation of God in the world today through the reality of the Holy Spirit and turned the world upside down. Now, what if we could do the same? What difference might it make in our family, in our work, in our community, in our church? But first and foremost, what difference might it make in our own lives? That is the call of God to us in this season, in this world. The same as it has been the call of God throughout history that he desires that we will not simply believe he is God, but that we will believe in him as saviour and follow him and perhaps turn our world upside down as well. Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down, my guest for this week's Life Issues. Charles, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Paul, thank you so much for having me. Bless you. I'm Paul Hammond. You've been listening to UCB Life Issues. Don't forget, you can hear it as a podcast wherever you download yours. And why not join me next week for another one? Good night. <laughs>